There I am. I'm up. Ah, uh, we're here. We're starting. There it is. Hello, folks. Meine Damen und Herren, ladies and gentlemen, Madame et Monsieur, how you guys doing? Beautiful day today. It was very uh, kind of overcast earlier, but it's nice now. Uh, so having a good, having a good time. How's everyone doing? Uh, there was something I think happened on Saturday. Uh, I think it was a tweet by it was a it was an interview with Joe Biden. I think he talked to Trevor Noah, and it was so just striking to me when it when it happened and what he said that I felt I need to talk about this, but I also needed to grill, so I ended up grilling instead. But I feel like it's two days later, and I feel like I still need to talk about it. So, uh. What's his nuts? Joe Biden was on, uh... Oh, Trevor Noah, right? He was on The Daily Show. And he's now doing his whole police reform shtick, right? Hey, guys, I'm as left-wing as you are. I'm not going to do any of the stuff you say, but I want to say I want to do it in a way that will get you to stop yelling and vote for me and stop scaring suburban white people. Um, and so... Mr. Crime Bill, having to reinvent himself, says, we need less prison, we need less jail time, and more mandatory uh, rehab. Mandatory rehab. He says, we need to stop building prisons and start building rehab centers. Now, I hope that's pretty obvious what the problem is there, right? You have essentially just taken the same building with the same functions and the same staff and just changed the name of it. I mean... The parody of liberalism, right? Just hey, would you like a less, a less abrasive name? Would you like a, a less of a bummer of name for this? Would you like a more soothing, more euphemized name for this thing that is going to be exactly the same? Because obviously the question is why the hell these people need to go to rehab? Why can't, why can't, why do we have to treat this as a as a place where the state intercedes with, with the ability to like put people behind bars imprison people it doesn't matter if you're there to dry out or if you're there to be punished at the end of the day you're being held by the state and there's a reason that prisons were originally called penitentiaries because the premise was you were supposed to spend your time your mandatory time in prison being penitent thinking about your sins and and trying to get absolution from them through repentance Penitence, the penitent man shall pass. Now, rehabilitation centers, it's the exact same model. It's just desacralized and modernized and liberalized because we don't believe in sin anymore, but we sure as hell believe in disease and addiction. But it plays the same social role. Both sin and addiction are personalized ex uh, excuses for behavior that is on aggregate the result of the exploitative and alienating uh, mode of production and political economy that they're living under. That's what it is. You have a social phenomenon that you treat as an individual failing. When believing in God, it was, it was sin. It was inherent, man's inherent tendency to fall towards sin. Now that we don't believe in sin, we just believe in optimal and suboptimal outcomes, uh, it's an addiction. 
it's, it's an illness that we can treat, but how do we treat it? The exact same way, P get, getting people off the streets, getting people behind bars, dominating them in the, in the, in every, in the cliche Foucaultian sense of dominating their biopower. And that really shows how, in the current mode of crisis capitalism, there is no room for less prisons. There's no room for less police. They're not going to do it because the system is only going to create more and more social dislocation, more and more alienation, more and more discontent as the wheels come off of this fucking thing. Which means the need to control that through brutal uh, authority is going to become more and more important. So they're going to be just throwing everybody in jail for mandatory rehab if that's what it takes. But the same, the fundamental reality is the exact same. It is, it is a society trying to defend itself against the implications of its own exploitative economic structures by personalizing and pathologizing social phenomena under whatever name they want to call it. But both of them are efforts to deal with the fact that the system will not allow itself to not have this at its disposal. Because a, a violent a crime is one of those things that is an inexorable and inevitable byproduct of social alienation under capitalism. It can't go away. So it has to be dealt with. And you can't uh, cede the state's authority over violence because that's what allows a functioning market system to operate, is security as the first principle. Not gonna, people aren't going to trade stuff unless they can be sure they're going to be able to keep the proceeds. They're not going to get ripped off. That's the, that's the basis. So that's the kind of stuff. When they say that, it tells you that this is that there there is no reforming it, and that is that's both sides of the observation that you know abolishing the police and abolishing uh, 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 prisons are you know worth pursuing because they're radical. And they are radical in the sense that they're not compatible with capitalism. It's just a question of whether using that as the fulcrum is what's going to get you uh, capitalism's defeat. I don't think so. Um, but it's certainly an undigestible demand. And uh, it'll be, it's, it's instructive to see what the, what the, offer, what the counteroffer is. Because Biden is essentially, his role there essentially is a middleman between this big group of people who are, who are alienated and pissed off about the status quo and capital. He is the middleman. He says, I'll talk to these people. And then they come to an agreement. So whatever his terms are, are going to be the minimal terms, at least, of, of capital. So I think that's why people are worried also uh, about the, the, the protests, because, because <clears throat> there are some things that are easier to accommodate than others by capitalism. It's easier to do something like switch the police from public to private, or um, you know, change prisons to rehab centers. Do something subtle that has the f appearance of change that will only further reinforce capital's authoritarian control. Uh, and the thing is, the thing with that though is, yeah, of course, that's a danger. There's always a danger. You still have to pursue every avenue that is in front of you, and that, those are the avenues in front of us right now. But that is the fear. You know, it's not totally, uh, it's not totally bad faith. It's not totally an, just an attempt to to invalidate the the um, protests or to give oneself an excuse to not participate, that is a real fear. That's a real danger. Because, you know, there is an open question how much pressure is going to be applied before it starts to gutter out. And 
how sophisticated the uh, the attempt to co-opt and and uh, recuperate the, the 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 issue of police brutality and, and over policing and militarized policing uh, increases too. But yes, it's very funny hearing hearing Biden be like mandatory rehab, okay? So you got to go. What is that? They mean that means there's a guy with a gun comes to your house. And he puts on handcuffs so you can't go away and that he makes you go into a building where you have to stay until you're done being rehabilitated. There's bars on the windows. You can't go home. Like the prospect of, "Hey, how about people just do drugs?" And if they need help, they are, you make it very, very easy for them to get it, like free and highly available. And you allow people every point of contact possible with social services that could ameliorate uh, their, their addiction. How about that? Is that an idea? Sure, but it's an idea that would require this massive di uh, public investment that the thin margins uh, and the terminal crisis of capitalism aren't allowing it. Uh, people are asking about Matt Taibbi, and I'm, this is not a dodge, or if you can claim it is if you want, but part of the grill pill for me is, I mean, I'm obviously on Twitter less than I used to be. I post less than I used to. I spend less time on my timeline than I've ever done. And part of that is that I, very, I, I, I refuse to follow certain stories. I, I know I have to like make sure what's going on in a broad sense so that I can talk about it on the show and here, but there's stuff that I just on principle refuse to pursue and anything involving media like meta arguments I don't care for not interesting to me irrelevant to me deck tear rearranging on the first order you're talking about canaries in the coal mine but they're in their death throes banging their heads against the cage walls and each other accusing each other of being the reason that they're suffocating but it's too late for them so yeah, I can only claim that you know I think Matt's a pretty a damn good reporter, and I call a couple things the, the, and the premise that there is a hysterical self-reinforcing ideology among the media class is unimpeachably true, and anybody who's trying to pit, uh, nitpick it without con like confronting the actual charge, I think is giving away the game. It's just that the thing is is that they would admit it. You you put them under a truth truth truthalizer. Most of these media people will admit, yeah, of course there is. But the next phrase is, it's a good hive mind. It's a good consensus. I love Big Brother, so I don't care that there is a very stifling hive mind consensus that is enforced on social media by members of the actual media. The people who can get fired, basically. The people who have decided to make that place their break room. And it's true, it exists, but they don't want to even give that away because they haven't, because they haven't, proven to their uh, interlocutors or the onlooker that their priors are correct. So they can't just say, yeah, but it's good. But that's what they mean. And a lot of the are yelling at Taibbi and trying to pit, nitpick specific points seems to me to be about avoiding that question. Like, just say, you, you just say it's good. Don't act like it doesn't exist. Don't act like everybody in this media class whenever any issue comes up, especially along very tense racial gender lines, that you don't know instinctively what would get you in trouble if you said it, and therefore, even if you think it, 
you wouldn't put it down. See, they can't say that because in their the fiction, the fiction of their uh, their world, nobody ever who is good has those thoughts. Nobody, they don't even think wrong thoughts. It's not a question of enforcement. They've fully assimilated it, and of course they have because they're all insisting it to each other. They're all at the fucking uh, Mexican standoff. None of them can admit that they're not it because if, if they admit that, hey, maybe sometimes I don't think this stuff and maybe I don't say this because of that, they're out. They broke the circle. They're done for. That's obviously true. That's like, but the thing is, you can't talk about it because obviously nobody inside will say it because they're outside if they do and they, can't, they don't listen to anybody outside because they can point to X, Y, or Z surrounding and distracting facts or bad associations to nullify the criticism. That's why it's an anti-dialectical nightmare space and where you can't learn anything there. Because all anyone is doing is preserving their place within a hierarchy. And it's the most fraught and it's the most hysterical and it's the most absurd in the media because they literally have their jobs on the line. It's not just personal clout like it is for a lot of us. So of course it's like, it's frenzy. I mean, like, David Graeber in Debt talks about one of the things that made the conquistadors so cruel, so notably cruel in their colonization and conquest of uh, Latin America, is that they were all basically debt peons of the crown or some fucking uh, uh, merchant house or, or, uh, or, or group of nobles. They were all wildly in debt, and even though they were all noblemen, and it was just this galling horror to be just hounded across the continent by this fucking debt. And that's the same way with these media people. They're more vicious and ferocious because their lives depend on it. The lives they want anyway, if they think they want. And this is what I mean by shibboleths. Like, they have to believe that everyone truly believes everything they say because the only way you can judge anyone is what they say because there's total bad faith assumed. You assume everyone is out to get you or a Nazi or whatever unless they say the right words. That means the words have to mean something. That means you can't just say the words and not mean them. Because that breaks the whole thing apart. It destroys the fantasy. It, it, it destroys the, 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 like the ideological uh, justification for its reinforcement psych psychologically. And so when someone says that, well, the good news is they would only say it if, they don't, if they're not fully in the group, right? They would only say it if they've already been exercised a little bit because then they don't have that to fear. Which means, of course, they'd say that. And so every response is just some version of get a load of this guy. And you wonder, well, why would you even just say LOL or this sucks? Why would you do that? So that other people can say yeah, too. And you can remind them that you're on the right side. And they can all remind each other in the comments that they're on the right side. Like, that's why everybody brings up these people they hate, so that they can reinforce to the group that they're not that. This is why it is a poisonous and, and absolutely uh, enervating place to talk to anyone, and you shouldn't do it. You should hang out with your friends. Twitter is for hanging out with your buddies and your friends. I understand that clout is the difference between life and death for many people now, you know? I understand that the difference between your GoFundMe succeeding and you getting chemotherapy and you not getting it and you fucking dying on the job is whether or not you have enough clout to get a GoFundMe. So it's life and death even for people who don't work in media, but for people who work in media, it's even more immediate. Immediate, as it were. 
so I've yet to see anybody arguing like Nathan Robinson. Ugh. It's like it's actually. Good. I mean, he came the closest, I guess, to any of these people to have to just saying it's actually good to have a stifling conformity of thought like that. Even though you're not enforcing it power, that's the thing. They think it's good because, like, any, you know, and it's true that, like, a communist or a socialist state would have a reinforcing hegemonic cultural, like, standard that would be enforced through informal and formal channels and through manners and things like that. Of course it would exist, but we don't live in that fucking country. We don't live in that society. This shit is just pounding into a base of pure hyper-exploitation that's only getting worse. That's 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 the that's the firmament that your culture is banging onto. So you're not prying at the bricks, you're reinforcing them. You're stamping them in even tighter, to use a bunch of awful metaphors in a row there. Like all you're doing is alienating people from the idea that there can be an objective truth. Like you don't think people notice this shit the way that Trump gets like treated by the media? You think there's nothing that the media has responsible for the reason that nobody, like, nobody who voted for Trump believes that COVID is even a real thing, even though it's killed 100,000 people? I mean, obviously, these are f things that you're not always contributing to, and they're going to exist anyway, but you make them worse. They made them worse on purpose, because they needed to signal it to each other that they were good people, because of the, the crisis, the, Ameri the great American uh, uh, identity crisis provoked by Trump winning. But yeah, because but the thing is, because the people who hate the media and say it's fucked up are all right wingers. Oh well, I guess we're actually good, even though the fucking media is one of the most easily analyzed categories of the cultural uh, matrix when it comes to like Marxism. Like like that's when people talk about the base and the superstructure. Like the media is one of the absolute prime movers of creating a hegemonic ideology. That means a capitalist ideology. That means that the media is capitalist. That there is no objective center that they're operating out of. And so that there's this weird defensiveness towards the press that comes when it's attacked by the right. And it's like, I get that to an extent, you know, because they are, are they're, they're attacking them for saying things that are true, you know, or sometimes, but a lot of it is like, they're mad at things that are true, whereas you should be mad at them for all the things that are false. But I think you end up in the long run doing more damage to the cause of breaking through these ideological blinders and, and you know, spreading uh, socialism by allying with the awful media against everybody. Say, no, the media sucks, and try to, like, reframe how it sucks. Because you can't get there from here. You can't go down and get, get us. We've, I mean, if the, if the Sanders campaign didn't help prove that, I don't know what would. But because we're in the media, because media people also are literally in, like their jobs are abstracted to the plane of pure representation. Like their job is to represent what happened. So it's very easy for them to see the world as representation. But it's not experienced that way for most people who don't have that lifestyle. People who actually work. Or even people who don't work but just don't spend all their time online. And you have to get to those people some way. I still don't know what way it is, but it sure as shit doesn't involve taking the side of the fucking media when if the media is right, you're wrong. You know that? Like the way they frame things, if the media is really an arbiter of reality with any kind of trustable guidelines that way, 
then you are wrong. Because the world that they uh, tell is not the world you see. But no, they're not. They're lying. Uh, I'm having the mint chocolate soylent. I've had it like I've had soylent like three times. It's not good. I'm always I'm always trying. Sometimes I'll try a new one just to see if it's different. But they all have the same kind of. Ugh. There's an aftertaste that's no bueno. Not for me. But hey, now I don't have to have dinner. Maybe I'll have a hard-boiled egg. Or rather, a soft-boiled egg. I do like those more. You gotta get a little bit of gum. Uh, somebody said uh, the stock market is detached from the economy. I don't know. Maybe it's replaced the economy in some way. You know? The entire economy is 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 on borrowed money, like in every sense. I do hope that this uh, Supreme Court decision today uh, doesn't do what I think it's designed to do, honestly, which is uh, reassure uh, colicky liberals that the, the Supreme Court is a salvageable institution. And I think that's John Roberts' job. And I think every relatively liberal decision that Roberts issues is part of a strategic give and take, where they give a little bit, and almost always on social issues, if you'll notice. Very rarely on things like voting rights uh, or corporate governance or regulation at all. So all the stuff that protects like the vital organs of capitalism and, and the maintaining political power of capitalism through the voting rights stuff, they're willing to give up anything else, really, within reason. Uh, because they don't want to become so politicized that even that the center of gravity on the left moves so far that even regular... Democrats have to essentially promise to pack the court or abolish it or something, because they are vulnerable to that. You know, it would not be difficult to render the Supreme Court obsolete. You, uh, expanding the court does only requires uh, two thirds of, I believe, two thirds of the Senate. And you might say, oh, that, they'll never get that. But hey, if things get bad enough and they get their shit together as a party, they could. You know, it's not impossible, and they want to make sure it never happens. They want to be sure that when they're a liberal, a liberal uh, government gets back in and starts doing things like trying to do Medicare for all, they cut it off. They, they stop that, that invasion of uh, state oversight and uh, state management into the economy. And that only happens because they, tampered people, they tempered people's uh, frustration with the court as an institution with the strategic handoff of certain things. Because it's not really the skin off of the ass of any corporate power uh, that that they've extended title uh, the Civil Rights Act that way. Uh, and as everybody has pointed out, as long as you have at will employment, every state allows you to fire people for being gay. You just have to be not a bunch of, enough of an idiot to leave a paper trail or evidence that you that that's why you did it, so that it could be indicated in court. Because otherwise, there's no case. If you just say you're fired, they can't do anything. But now, how many, how many articles are we going to get about, wow, Roberts and Gorsuch, surprise again. Well, are we seeing a moderation on the court, which gives more leeway to every fucking 
uh, liberal who wants to, to say, no, no, the Supreme Court is a vital part of our uh, institutional framework of checks and balances. And remember Earl Warren? He was cool. I say, uh, make the Supreme Court uh, the size of Major League Baseball. And instead of deciding things, they just play baseball games. And then, like, they can assign winners and losers to the cases based on who won the game. It doesn't matter. It's not connected to anything. What are you even... Why are you here? How did you get here? Marshall, you fucking asshole. No, judicial review, like half the shit in the Constitution, presumes a nonpartisan nature that... Democratic governance is basically incapable of ever uh, producing. Because you never have totally unified class interests in a country that styles itself a democracy, even within the capital class. It's absurd because there are different industries with different desires. There's a city in the country, the gentry and the, and the, uh, and the early uh, merchants. They're always there. I mean, my God, these guys came from England. England had already had a civil war which, even if they might have remembered it as being about religion, was really driven by the growing um, economic conflict between the urban centers, uh, the merchant trade-based urban centers of England, dominated by the Puritans, and the landed gentry of, uh, of like uh, post-feudal landowners, who were the Tories, the Cavaliers. Because Protestantism corresponds with degree of uh, economic uh, complexity in Europe and then in the United States because your Protestantism needed to be able to fit into your pocketbook it had to be small enough to fit in a pocketbook and that means it had to be like based around a very few simple concepts and that made it hostile to things like icons things like uh, cathedrals things like uh, a, a, a ecclesiastical bureaucracy you need to be sit around a table with your stupid bowl cut because the rest of your body and mind were devoted to making money. The languor and the, and the godly presence of older religions, of, of, of the medieval religion, of medieval Christianity, there's no place. You have, you're moving too fast. You've got too much to do. You've got too much energy to devote to the material world and reproducing wealth. So your, your religion has to fit into a little lobe in your brain one book, one chair, one outfit. Yes, it was also started due to the colonization of Ireland. Uh, it, was a, it was a classic uh, over, crisis of overextension, the same way the French Revolution was. Because remember, so... The, uh, the, the English Civil War started when the king needed money to fight in Ireland after the Irish Revolt. France had to call the Estates General because of all the money he'd spent fighting England in, in the American Revolution. In both cases, it was an attempt to extend or maintain uh, 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 imperial expansion. Producing a crisis between the two classes of actual... Uh, like tax, like sources of taxation, the land and uh, and trade. 
was this? I was saying something. I forget what I was saying about it, though. Ramp gate. I mean, for me, the ramp is never the thing with Trump. The, the ramp is very funny, but the thing to me to Trump, the giveaway for me to Trump, which he also did during that speech, is this. When he has to, he has to use two hands to drink, because you should never need two hands to drink. It's real easy. Look. And it is a sign of neurological degeneration, because the gears are starting to slip, and it takes too much, like, neural dexterity, like hand-eye coordination and microtrans actions to guide a liquid in your mouth without fearing like a failure and you need a hand you need a hand so something's wrong something's wrong with Trumpy but that's been true for a while I still think he might have mad cow disease honestly the guy eats a lot of beef and it's not like he stopped in the late 90s when there was uh, the Parkinson's, there were the Parkinson's. When there was a mad cow outbreak, and he loves going to Scotland, which is basically just a giant island made out of prions. Uh, tertiary syphilis is funny. I love the idea that his doctor knew he had syphilis, but he knew he didn't like hearing bad things about himself. So he never got around to telling him? Just because, oh, God. Cause, or, or he told him and he didn't believe him? No, no way. There's no way. I have the best blood. There's no way I've got syphilis. It's gross. It's disgusting. Why would I have syphilis? Nah. I can believe that, too. Because how many times can you tell him? And then it'll just eventually, you just got to give up. Especially since he probably didn't pay you. It's like, fuck this guy. He didn't even pay for the, tr for the fucking uh, blood test. He can fucking have his brain turn into a melting snow cone. Syriana is a great movie. One of the better Iraq War era movies. I would put up there in the top. Really good. Uh, actually, I mean, it gets. I, I know it got uh, criticized for being too kind of 70s, hard on the sleeve lefty, and that it's too simplifying. Uh, but, and yeah, like the story of, you know, the good westernizing sheik who gets blown up by a drone because he wants to sell oil to China or something. It's, it's a little t uh, just so, but it gets at the reality of America's role in the region much better than anything I can imagine. Uh, it, 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 it starts in the right place in that it functions. It's like Washington is the, f is the fulcrum here. Everything moves along that axis because it has become the strategic and like tactical uh, battle space, as they like to talk of it, where, you know, because America's economy is premised on petrodollars, therefore control strategically and tactically of the most significant oil production places is essentially, it is national security. When they say that, they're not lying. At least the state as it exists now.
The oil is still cheap as hell. Cheaper than milk, I think. Get yourself some oil. Get yourself a nice frosty mug of oil down at the old Sitco. Two, two bits. Two bits of gander. What happened to Obamagate? You just, you watch. Obamagate ain't going away, folks. That's a promise. Oh no, people are fighting about the Marquis de Lafayette and my Menchies. Ugh. Gosh, the Menchies. I can't handle them. Oh, Obamagate was just, uh, it was just Spygate. That was the same thing. It was the idea that Obama had spied on Trump Watergate style by having the FBI look into, I think, Michael Flynn and Paul Manafort. That's the premise. And the thing is, if it's true, they did a really shitty job. And you can say it's like Watergate, but the real difference is, forget all that other shit, it's that one, you had a divided government where the president was a different party of Congress, and two, the motherfucker was on tape saying, let's obstruct justice. And not in a, I'm going to make a quid pro quo over the airway, in a, I'm going to give these guys a suitcase of a million dollars in uh, illegally raised slush fund campaign money. And you gotta do wonder what had happened if he just had fucking destroyed the tapes. They probably would have kicked him out. Because back then people uh, still believed in all that shit. It's kind of adorable. When you look back at Watergate and you look back at the way it was portrayed in media and the way it was talked about, uh, it was pretty wild. There were people who supported Nixon all the way though. Uh, Ronald Reagan was prime among them. He was uh, one of the most prominent Republicans who never turned on him because famously the thing that made Nixon decide finally to resign was Barry Goldwater coming to the White House and saying it's over sir uh, but Reagan never fucking lost lost faith God Hillary endorsing Elliot Engel is so good she's just she can't not be the worst she can't not do the worst and be the worst in every moment of her life it's, it's, I don't know if she's trolling at this point, if she knows what she's doing. It's kind of impressive. She's, she's an Ahab-like figure. And we are at this point the whale, and she's trying to destroy us. That actually brings me to something I wanted to do. Uh, so I finished Moby Dick again, and it is great. It's better than its reputation. It is not a classic. It is a vibrant, brilliant piece of work. Uh, one of the most theo like spiritually and theologically interesting and I think uh, evocative books I've ever read. Uh, and I do want to read Mud Meridian next just to feel that it's like uh, the DLT, the cold side of the hot side, the desert side of the and the water side, but uh, I wanted to read here the last, my favorite chapter of the book, which is the last chapter before they spot Moby Dick and decide to, and the go for the chase. And it's Starbuck is talking to Ahab, and he almost convinces him to give up the chase. The symphony. 
It was a clear steel blue day. The firmaments of air and sea were hardly separable in that, in that all-pervading azure. Only the pensive air was transparently pure and soft, with a woman's look, and the robust and manlike sea heaved with long, strong, lingering swells as Samson's chest in his sleep. Hither and thither, on high, glided the snow-white wings of small, unspeckled birds. These were the gentle thoughts of the feminine air. But to and fro in the deeps, far down in the bottomless blue, rushed mighty leviathans, swordfish, and sharks. And these were the strong, troubled, murderous thinkings of the masculine sea. But though thus contrasting within, the contrast was only in shades and shadows without. Those two seemed one. It was only the sex, as it were, that distinguished them. Aloft, like a royal czar and king, the sun seemed giving this gentle air to this bold and rolling sea, even as bride to groom. And at the girdling line of the horizon, a soft and tremulous motion, more seen here at the equator, denoted the fond, throbbing thrust, the loving alarms with which the poor bride gave her bosom away. A little horny, I think we can all agree. Tied up and twisted, oh dear. Gnarled and knotted with wrinkles, haggardly firm and unyielding, his eyes glowing like coals, that still glowed in the ashes of ruin, untottering Ahab stood forth in the clearness of the moon, lifting his splintered helmet of a brow to the fair girl's forehead of heaven. O oh, immortal infancy, and an infancy of the azure, an innocency of... <coughs> sorry. O oh, immortal infancy, and innocency of the azure, Invisible winged creatures that frolic all round us, sweet childhood of air and sky, how oblivious were ye of old Ahab's close-coiled coiled, close coiled woe. But so have I seen little Mer Miriam and Martha, laughing-eyed elves, heedlessly gamble round their old sire, sporting with the circle of singed locks which grew on the marge, marge of that burnt-out crater of his brain. Slowly crossing the deck from the scuttle, Ahab leaned over the side and watched how his shadow in the, sharp in the water sank and sank to his gaze, and more and more that he strove to pierce the profundity. But the lovely aromas in that enchanted air did at last seem to dispel for a moment the cantankerous thing in his soul. That glad, happy air, that winsome sky, did at last stroke and caress him. The stepmother world, so long cruel, forbidding, now threw affectionate arms round his stubborn neck, and did seem to joyously sob over him, as if over one that, however willful and erring, she could yet find it in her heart to save and to bless. From beneath his slouched hat Ahab dropped a tear into the, ski into the sea, nor did all the Pacific contain such wealth as that one wee drop. Starbuck saw the old man, saw him, how he heavily leaned over the side, and he seemed to hear in his own true heart the measureless sobbing that stole out of the center of the serenity around. Careful not to touch him or be noticed by him, he yet drew near to him and stood there. Ahab's turned. Starbuck. Sir. Oh, Starbuck, it is a mild, mild wind and a mild-looking sky. On such a day, very much such a sweetness as this, I struck my first whale. A boy harpooner of eighteen, forty, forty, forty years ago, ago, forty years of continual wailing, forty years of privation and peril and storm time, forty years on the pitiless sea, for forty years has Ahab forsaken the peaceful land, for forty years to make war on the horrors of the deep. Aye, and yes, Starbucks, out of those forty years I have not spent three ashore. When I think of this life I have led, the desolation of solitude it has been, the masoned, walled town of a captain's exclusiveness, which admits but small entrance to any sympathy from the green country without, oh, weariness, heaviness, guinea coast slavery of solitary command. 
when I think of all of this, only half suspected, not so keenly known to me before, and how for forty years I have fed upon dry, salted fare, fit emblem of the dry nourishment of my soul, when the poorest landsman has had fresh fruit to his daily hand and broken the world's fresh bread to my moldy crusts. Away, whole oceans, from that young woman girl wife I wedded past fifty and sailed for Cape Horn the next day, leaving but one dent in my marriage pillow. Wife, wife, rather a widow with her husband alive. Aye, I widowed that poor girl when I married her, Starbuck, and then the, this madness, the frenzy, the boiling blood, and the smoking brow with which, for a thousand lowerings, old Ahab has furiously, foamingly chased his prey. More a demon than a man? Aye, aye, what forty years fool, fool, old fool has old Ahab been. Why this strife of the chase? Why wary and palsy the arms at the oar, and the iron and the lance? How the richer or better is Ahab now? Behold... Oh, Starbuck, it is not hard that with this weary load I bear, one poor leg should have been snatched out from under me. Here, brush this old hair aside. It binds me. It blinds me that I seem to weep. Locks so gray did never grow but from one out of ashes. But do I look very old, so very, very old, Starbuck? I feel deathly faint, bowed and humped as though I were Adam, staggering beneath the piled century since paradise. God, 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 crack my heart, stave my brain, mockery, mockery, bitter, biting mockery of gray hairs. Have I lived enough joy to wear ye and seem and feel thus intolerably old? Close, stand close to me, Starbuck, let me look into human eye. It is better that to, than to gaze into sea or sky, better than to gaze upon God. By the green land, by the bright hearthstone, this is the magic glass man. I see my wife and my child in thine eye. No, no, stay on board, on board. Lower not when I do, when branded Ahab gives chase to Moby Dick. That hazard shall not be thine. No, no, not with far away home I see in that eye. Oh, my captain, my captain, noble soul. Grant, old heart, after all, why should anyone give chase to that hated fish? Away with me, let us fly these deadly waters. Let us home. Wife and child, too, are Starbucks, wife and child of his brotherly, sisterly, playfellow youth, even as thine, sir, are the wife and child of thy loving, longing, paternal old age. Away, let us away, this instant, let us alter the course. How cheerily, how hilariously, oh, my captain, would we blow a bow on our way to see old Ed Nantucket again? I think, sir, they have such mild blue days, even as this in Mantucket. They have, they have. I have seen them. Some summer days in the morning, about this time, yes, it is his new nap now. The boy vivaciously wakes, sits up in bed, and his mother tells him of me, of cannibal old man, how I board, how I board upon the deep, but will yet come back to dance him again. Tis my Mary, my Mary herself. She promised that my boy every morning should be carried to the hill to carry the first glimpse of his father's sail. Yes, yes, no more. It is done. We head for Nantucket. Come, my captain, study out the course and let us away. See, see, the boy's face from the window, the boy's hand on the hill. But Ahab's glance was averted. Like a blighted fruit tree, he shook and cast his last cindered apple to the soil. What is it? What nameless, inscrutable, unearthly thing is it? What cozening, hidden lord and master, and cruel, remorseless emperor commands me that against all natural lovings and longings I so keep pushing and crowding and jamming myself on all the time, recklessly making me ready to do what in my own proper, natural heart I durst not so much as dare? Is Ahab Ahab? Is it I, God, or who that lifts this arm? 
But if the great sun move not of himself, but it is an errand boy in heaven, nor one single star can resolve, but by some invisible power, how then can this one small heart beat, this one small brain think thoughts, unless God does that beating, does that thinking, does that living, and not I? By heaven, man, we are turned round and round in this world, like yondless, like wander yindless. By heaven, man, we are turned round and round in this world, like yonder windless, and fate is the handspike. And all the time, lo, that smiling sky and this unsounded sea. Look, see on Albacore, who puts him in? Who puts it into him? To whose to do? When that judge himself is dragged to the bar. I'm sorry. Look, see on Albacore. Who put it into him to chase and fang that flying fish? Where do murderers go, man? Who's to doom when the judge himself is dragged to the bar? But it is a mild, mild wind and a mild-looking sky, and the air smells now as if it blew from a far-off meadow. They have been awake, making hay somewhere under the slope of the Andes, Arbuck, and the mowers are sleeping among the new-mown hay. Sleeping? Aye. Toil we must we may. We all sleep at last in the field. Sleep, aye, and rust amidst cut green, green grass. As last year's scythes flung down and left in the hat-cuffed swaths. Starbuck! But blanched to a corpse's hue with despair, the mate had stolen away. Ahab crossed the deck to gaze over on the other side, but stared at two reflected fixed eyes in the water there. Fidella was motionlessly leaning over the same rail. Ahab needed to grill. At the end of the day, Ahab needed to chill and to grill. That was what he needed. He needed to turn that whalebone leg into some sort of uh, snap-open grilling contraption and have himself a good time on the deck of the Pequod. Have himself a hoot and a half with a jug, maybe. That's what I'd do. I already kind of have the Ahab situation that I have a leg that is completely numb. So it feels the way that Ahab's leg would feel, like it's it's t it's tingling because of my spinal injury. So I have the phantom pain, but there's just there's a leg there, which is better, I must say, because I can use it. Uh, but yeah, I have that. I never decided to go kill a giant majestic whale over it, weirdo. But I can't say it definitely uh, affected my life in a lot of ways, and kind of. Uh, limited me for a long time and traumatized me in ways I wasn't able to recognize at the time. But that's what life is for, to work that shit out, because everybody's got something. I want to do yoga, but like I said, I'm kind of disabled. I need like a disabled yoga. I might start doing that. Something you can do from a chair or something. I guess, yeah, what would be a white, my white whale be? I guess the Democratic Party, maybe? From hell's heart I stab at thee. For hate's sake I spit my last breath at thee. I mean, I'm trying to get rid of uh, vengeance as a, as a motivator, but... They are certainly an institution that needs to be destroyed. Democrato Delenda S, no question. I mean, yes, capitalism, but, you know, it's like Bin Laden talks about with the near and the far enemy. Uh, the Democrats are actually within striking distance in some way. Capitalism's a bit far off.
Of course, that might not stay the same. I mean, we honestly could be in a free fall, in which case party politics is going to take a backseat to anything else pretty quickly. But some people, I don't know. Like I've, I have no idea. We really are in a in a in a in a wonderland of black swans. Black swans are shitting all over everybody. It's the birds with, with just black swans just bukkakeing all everywhere. We're definitely in the cool zone. There's no question about that. Like one of the big things that's gonna uh, that's uh, the big. Uh, I honestly think the biggest X factor that nobody's really talking about because it's too terrifying is how bad is uncontrolled COVID gonna be? Because it's hitting. We're gonna be hitting uncontrolled levels because nobody's gonna be able to get everybody back indoors again. And does that cause so much sickness? Does that uh, overburden the? The medical system so much that critical infrastructure can't be maintained that's a question that I think is absolutely open and we're not going to know that for a couple months and that is why August is going to probably be the most important month maybe in American history because that's when all the, uh, the money that has been going out uh, 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 goes away all the federal cash that's also when I think uh, evictions go back into effect, uh, and it will be when the the first wave of fully developed nationwide, almost freely transmitted corona is going to be hitting the economy. That's going to be a spicy, spicy meatball, uh, and I have no idea what the answer is because those variables are still too up in the air. I don't know enough about the epidemiology for one thing. But it's pretty scary. I am fairly confident, though, that on the money side anyway, that they will end up extending uh, unemployment insurance and shit like that. Because everyone's pointing to the fact that Mnuchin said they're not going to do it. They're not going to say it. They're going to say they're not going to do it until the moment they do it. They're going to say we're not going to do it until a minute before they fucking put it in, into the Senate because they want it to never be seen as something people can take for granted. They never want it to be seen as a new entitlement. So it has to be an emergency outlay. And the only way to emphasize the emergency nature and the fact that you're doing it on your own terms and not being demanded of it, you're not giving into a demand, you're doing it because you've decided to do it because, look, it was going to pass. You didn't, you didn't make us do this. We did it on our terms because it was necessary. That means it's not going to be there again if we don't think that's necessary. it's uh, we. So I think that's still going to happen. Because if it doesn't, that's more hassle than it's worth. I mean, at that point, you have to really do believe George Soros is trying to bring about an actual collapse of the America America for some weird uh, protocols reason. If, if, if there is anything like a capitalist uh, 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 class with a self-interest that it can execute, it will it would not want that to happen. And it would have the means, most importantly, to prevent it in the form of big cash payments. But the X factor then, like I said, is what if everybody's too sick to spend the money or work in the jobs? That's the question. See, the cruelty in the point thing to me, I think that that can be a misleading uh, uh, catchphrase. I think it has certain applicability to Republican policy and rhetoric 
because that has the benefit of appealing to their base in the political realm. But uh, the cruelty is not the point of capitalism. Profit is the point of, point of capitalism. Cruelty is the inevitable main byproduct of profit, but it is not what it is seeking. It's the effect, not the cause. It's the fumes, not the uh, oil. And of course, that makes capitalists crueler and crueler and crueler because you have to be cruel to execute that kind of monstrosity. But you're just you're serving the logic of the of the system because capitalism inevitably the, the, the capitalist singularity is which in, is the one in which all humanity is subverted to machine logic, all humans reduced to machine organisms of GIGO of stimulus response with no species being left and you got to say though if humans were that then there would no be there'd be no more cruelty at all the end state would have no cruelty because machines are i mean are machines can you be cruel to a machine you can't so the very final end state of techno capitalism if it ever were to come before the system collapsed it would be cruelty-free. It would be like a cage-free uh, farm-fresh egg or a free-range chicken because you can't be cruel to machinery. And that's what we'd be at the final end state of capitalism. No more capable of being, uh, being uh, hurt than a, than a fucking transistor radio. Yeah, I think that's Nick Land. And I think that's a classic example of, of uh, deluding yourself to try to cope. Like, you see the trajectory and you say, actually, it's good. Instead of, this has to not be what we end up with. And we have to do anything we can to stop it, no matter how cringe it is. Uh, or how dissatisfied it makes us as we watch reality be turned into hyper-reality in front of our faces. I really don't think it's, I don't, I think, I think saying that it's cruel on purpose is reversing the order of operation. All the ideological formation is around the things that are required of the system. It's justifying a system that you're maintaining. So yeah, capitalism hurts poor people more. It hurts people of color more. It hurts vulnerable communities more. It hurts indigenous communities more. That's because those are the people who are because of their, uh, their position in the economy, that is their role to play. And it, and it is aligned, it's reproduced by culture, but like the, the sum total of, of misery and exploitation is, is the byproduct of the machinery. And that means the people operating the machinery over time grow cruel, grow and are selected to be people who find those people disgusting and under them, so that they're happy carrying this stuff out instead of sad. But it's got to get carried out either way. See what, yes, like capitalism, the allure of it is all this psychic benefit. Oh, you get to push around little guys and you get to do all this stuff. But that's just about how it 
that's how it recruits people to to do its bidding. It, it's 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 a a a pheromone mist for for sociopaths. The way that like the there's that parasite that gets into the brain of the mouse to make it not afraid of the cat. The machine is the thing moving. The machine is doing it. It just needs people to fucking actually carry it out. And those people then have certain values that make what they do okay to themselves. And then it creates cultural superstructures that justify it to everybody else. So what you're describing, that pleasure, that cruelty that is a big part of capitalist practice, that is the end result of a system that selects for it. And so that's when you have to ask things like, will they bail us out before the entire economy collapses and all the, all the fantasy numbers on the boards, all those fake numbers and those servers that is the sum total of wealth in this country mean nothing. Like somebody tripped over a fucking cord and the, and, the, and the power went out and all of it went away. Do you think they want that? They're not that liquid yet. They, I think they're in the process of trying to get to full liquidity, honestly. And you could argue, my, my whole conspiracy about this, account, this whole COVID thing and then the the uh, the, George, the George Floyd protest is a like a controlled op to short sell the economy and, and get liquid to be able to have long term investment in a, like a post crisis uh, world. But they're not that liquid yet. The money's still all made up. It's still still on ledgers. It's got to get turned into real uh, infrastructure. And they haven't done it yet, to my knowledge. Unless there's like a, a, a unless there's way more space colonization than they say, or there's like a hollow Earth or something. I don't think they're there yet. So they're gonna want to keep the numbers meaning something, even though it'll make pe fewer people suffer. That's not the point. The point is keeping the numbers to mean something. Well, Hollow Earth is least acknowledges that the world is round, so it has that over Flat Earth. Oh, Thurlow Weed is awesome. Thurlow, Thurlow Weed was a base. It was sort of like a Karl Rove type figure. He was a roving political operative, one of those guys in early America who looked around the village, said, "I don't want to fucking stand behind a a, a, a donkey my whole life. I'm going to make it to the big city and see what I can make of myself." You know, because basically anybody who could read one book that wasn't the Bible, would be able to get a job. And if it was the Bible, you could get a job as a preacher. Uh, like Abraham Lincoln, read a book, became a lawyer. Uh, Threw low weed, ran out and said, hey, everyone here is an insane uh, fanatic in upstate New York, which was true. The burned over district, they called it. It was the heart of the Second Great Awakening. And, the whole, and also the home of uh, uh, the Mormon, uh, uh, where Joseph Smith found the plates. Uh, the home of Mormonism. And he found in the fertile soil this ferment of like anxiety with the, the shifting uh, economy of the, the new mercantile state. And that's why he helped found the anti-Masonic party uh, and helped r run it to Congress. They actually had a bunch of congressmen, which is pretty impressive. Uh, just, a, just a platform of not liking Masons. But then they got folded into the wigs. First the know-nothings and then the wigs. And Thurlow Weed ended up becoming like the chief advisor to William Seward.
Mormonism is fascinating. I would like to talk more about Mormonism. Uh, I, I, I appreciate it because it's one of the... It's the... Obviously, it's the one religion that acknowledged the need to Americanize Christianity. Uh, and it was the first to do that. But then it was... That happened in the, second, in the 20th century with like evangelicalism. That created a new... Uh, that Americanized Christianity, too. It was a two-step process. But, of course, because the Mormons broke off earlier, they're better. That's why Felix is very, uh, very correct that Mormons are who evangelicals think they are. They think, ah, we're a good Christian, we're a good Christian family with good values, and it re it's reflected, and we're blessed by God. And it's like, you have a house with, like, 15 mortgages on it, a... Uh, uh, a online porn addiction that has seen you go to the hospital with dick abrasions, uh, like three children uh, all addicted to the different drugs they steal out of your cupboard. And a job, you know, selling uh, used uh, jet skis to, like, military officers. Whereas the Mormons are all living in five million square foot homes with uh, 15 children and jobs. The guy has a job as a, like a marketing guy at, a, at a, 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 like a, the company that takes the swear words out of movies, and all the wives all have multi-level marketing schemes that they get together in their giant finished basements and sell each other. That's, that's the dream. That's what evangelicals think they are, and they're just a bunch of dumb hicks. Scientology is, an, is like a 20th century attempt to take that same need for an American religion uh, and to adapt it to the time, and the time there being the, the, the post-nuclear moment where God really did die. Like God, God obviously was on the, on the table for a while, but I think it was World War II that really put the bullet in his head, especially in the United States. And, uh, and that nuclear era created this like hole this God-sized hole that he could fill and it would have needed I mean it's called Scientology for a reason because that was an era where faith was uh, being directed at supersonic speed almost from from God and from the spiritual realm to the technological where, where all the faith now rested in science so another world-class hustler another another true pimp of, uh, of, the, of the spiritual hustle my man Elrond Uh, all right, guys. I'm uh, gonna go. Uh, gonna try to do more this week. Maybe one once a week, or uh, maybe, I'm gonna try to do another one tomorrow. Anyway, bye bye.